Welcome back to the 116th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two talking about climate change. One's a very disastrous take and one's a more positive take. And then we will have one article talking about court packing and how the concept is actually a little bit more dangerous than people think. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. All right, now that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So if there's one issue that really sticks in the heart of young voters, it is the climate. You have those that say it's the future apocalypse that's coming if we don't address it. There are others who say that the it's a future struggle. And then, of course, there are the others who say it's an opportunity to innovate and adapt and create new technologies. So where do you stand? You know, throw your opinion down there in the comments section. What do you think the climate crisis or the ever-coming climate change what do you think we can do about it? And does it present an opportunity? Is it only negative? Tell me what you think. And with that said, let's jump into our first article. This one comes from Common Dreams. Technology will not restore our pre-climate crisis future. So, you know, there's a lot of weighted terms there. Will not restore pre-climate crisis future. And what they're really getting at here is... The attempts on the environmental activists' front normally come down to, okay, we need to keep the temperature change or the temperature growth below 1.5 degrees centigrade higher than it was pre-industrialization in the United States across the world. If we are able to do this, we'll be able to mitigate a lot of the more dangerous predictions about extreme weather, melting ice, deserts that will now become completely uninhabitable to human beings. So we have to really stick under that goal in order to make sure that we can live a sustainable future. And this article is actually one of a recurring nature that happens in Common Dreams. And it's been going on for about a year now. And they're trying to address climate issues. So they're trying to point out here that this is not just a overarching policy narrative that the Democrats are taking on. This is something that has resonated with the grassroots. And there are lots of different organizations that are coming and putting pressure on politicians, on different localities to solve the climate crisis. So let's talk about these smaller groups first, and then we'll really move in to what they say. One is the major issue that we're still going to face, even if we try to get over to green energy sources and get away from renewables, and then a solution that they offer that I don't necessarily agree with, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Quote, the earth heating up while governments remain frozen on climate change. Most of the action is happening in countless rebellious communities across the country. Throughout the past year, quote, in real time, has featured collective action at the grassroots, including from Indigenous Environmental Network, the L.A. Bus Riders Union, the Poor People's Campaign, Native Peoples and Farmers Uniting to Fight Climate Pipelines, 
Start Empowerment, the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum, Extinction Rebellion DC, Farmers for Climate Action, Defend the Atlantic Fortis, and other groups. Even if the federal government are not taking effective action on climate, local movements can be crucial to curbing capitalism's assault on Earth. Now, with leaders in Washington and other world capitals still letting us down, local and regional action will be more important than ever. End quote. First off, strong language, capitalism's assault on Earth. If you really want to frame it one way, I would say uh, human consumptionism, uh, that's, that's the assault on Earth more than capitalism. And some people will say, well, capitalism encourages more consumption. To some degree, that may be true. But I've talked about this at length in an essay that I was writing. I truly believe that consumption, materialism, is something that has been crucial to the human species for a long time. You've had religions, philosophies, the Taoists, the Buddhists, Christians, Jews, all of these different groups have all put in put forth ideas on how to limit your material connection to the world. And this all happened before capitalism. So I would say humans desire for consumption is something that predates capitalism. So I think that that's an unfair way to frame it, saying it's capitalism's assault on the earth. But I do agree that local action is the way to get things done. Because at the end of the day, if you go out to church on Sundays or you just go out to your local food pantry and you are handing out the food to some disadvantaged families or people who have food stamps, you are in direct contact with your community. You know what's going on. You know what people's views are. You are intimately connected with their lives. And you can actually have a bigger impact in that local community rather than a federal government that just hands out the food stamps and says, oh, yeah, go use it wherever you want. Oh, no, no, yeah, we don't know the demographic makeup. We don't know what everybody believes here. We don't know if you're going to use it at a food pantry or if you're going to use it at the grocery store. We don't, we don't care. Just go use them. Versus a activist on the local front could say, okay, we know that people want to get it from a food pantry. They don't want to go to the store and feel ashamed because of this, that, and the other. So you can effectively create policy on a more local level because you have an understanding of what's going on and the values that the community holds. So I think this is a good way to at least push for climate action. If they're very, very content on pushing for climate action, doing it small first, building up these movements from the local area, having little testing grounds of different policies, that's what the states are for. That's what federalism is for. Allow different communities to test out policies within a state. Then state officials see, oh, this experiment worked. Let's test it out. Then it goes to the federal level once it's been implemented and tested multiple, multiple times. It's kind of a scientific process as well. So I think that's great. Now let's move on to the issue they see in this in-real-time report moving forward even as we reduce the amount of fossil fuels that we are using as a species. Quote, the industrialized world is violating ecological boundaries in countless ways. But here I'll focus on just the metals that will be required by a non-fossil fuel energy system. The now prevalent vision for reducing oil and gas use has embodied last year's Inflation Reduction Act. 
It is wholly to convert the U.S. economy to operate with electric vehicles, heat pumps, and other technologies that feed off of power plants rather than directly combusting fuels. It would also feature an unprecedented boom in the deployment of wind and solar farms across the nation's landscape, along with 60% expansion and sweeping overhaul of the national power grid. So if you notice, and I'll get back to the quote here in a second, if you notice exactly what they're pointing out here, that all of these systems that are being put in place, windmills, solar panels, they require unique metals to make sure that they operate properly. In order to store that energy, you're going to have to create large cells because you can't generate wind all the time. You can't create or use solar energy all the time. People know this. So what's our solution? We come up with huge lithium-ion cells that store the energy so we can use it later. That is a great solution. And it allows us to say, okay, we can still, just like when we had fire and we could have lamps at night to continue reading or we could light up the house with a candle. This was a huge change. This allowed us to actually utilize the night a little bit more and not be so afraid of it. But then we're coming to the same issue. Well, we can't necessarily keep that energy source going overnight. Oh, we're going to do exactly what we did last time, which is create an innovation that allows us to harness the power of light, but in this case, energy, at a different time. But that requires metals. And that's directly what they say here. Quote, countless wind turbines will be required, each with a generator containing 60 tons or more of metal. The grid upgrade will require huge quantities of copper for new power lines, as well as copper, lithium, cobalt, and nickel to produce hundreds of millions of tons of lithium-ion battery packs for power storage. Many millions of batteries will also be needed to convert the national vehicle fleet to run on electric, end quote. So, why is this an issue? Because I can only take out so much, and I think this really sets up the conversation, and then I'll elaborate on it more, because this article is really, really long, and if you want to read it yourself, there'll be a link in the description. I suggest that you go read it, because it was a very interesting thought process that we see here, and a lot of what they're saying I agree with to some, to some extent, which is we're going to be using a lot of metals. I agree with their factual statements that we're going to have to use a lot of metals. I don't agree with their solutions and their necess- their derision of the idea of extracting these metals. Now, I do agree that we could do it in a more ethical way, especially talking about cobalt. You know that this has been in the news cycle, or at least been in the forefront of some people's minds for a while, ever since Joe Rogan had that author on who was doing the book in, I believe, the Congo, talking about the unethical practices of cobalt mining. This has really been at the forefront of people's minds. And then, <laughs> minds, that's a, that's a good pun. I may use that in the future. But sorry, sorry, I'm getting a little off track. So we, as a culture, are starting to really understand where our minerals are coming from and how we are exploiting populations that just they just need a little bit of money they're willing to go through these terrible conditions in order to earn a little bit of extra dollars to feed their family to buy those new shoes so that they can walk a little bit further to work or something of this nature and i do agree that that is an issue but i don't agree that actually extracting them is a problem because If you think about it this way, one of the arguments they offer is there's a limited amount. 
We used to think the same thing about oil. Then we found new techniques to harvest oil, or sorry, to extract oil. Then we found new reservations of oil. As we continue to go deeper into the Earth's crust, we will find more minerals. And also remember, we're moving into a space age when companies are already filing to be able to mine asteroids in the future. And once that happens, the metal industry here on the Earth will absolutely crash. Do you know the abundance of elements and minerals and metals that are in these asteroids and comets? Do you? It's insane. There's enough gold in some of these comets to eclipse the amount of gold that we have mined in the entirety of human history. Imagine if that much gold flooded the market. It's at, what, $2,100 for an ounce of gold nowadays? I think that's accurate. But the price that I saw was 2200 Imagine, imagine if there was an influx of gold from an asteroid that could drop by half, if not more. So... I don't necessarily think that the extracting of the metals itself is terrible and bad. I understand that the conditions that under which we are doing it is not great. And there is ecological damage when we do it. But if you want to move towards a green future, there are really two or three solutions at this point. There's one, we geoengineer the Earth, we put up crystals and we reflect sunlight, and then we just go about our day as per normal or we put different chemicals in the clouds to reflect sunlight, and we just go about our day as normal, pretending nothing's happening. We, the other one is we create new green technologies that make sure that we're not reliant on fossil fuels. That's going to require us to just restra- uh, extract more metals and create new technologies with different types of metals with the limited amount of resources we have at this point on the Earth. And the third one is the solution that they give, which I really, I really don't like. And there, let's be clear, there could be more solutions than the three I'm thinking of, but they're the first three that really came to my mind. So let's talk about their solution here. It's about lowering consumption. Quote, it doesn't have to be this way. An alternative to ferocious, high-energy, self-sabotaging economy would be one that provides for just enough material production for equitable insurance ensuring a decent, satisfying life for all. But the political, as in the polis of the people, obstacles would be formidable. Policymaking should reflect the will of the people. And a vast majority of Americans do want their world to remain green and livable. What's interesting there is they say that they want the world to remain green and livable, but then why is the polis an obstacle? They literally just said a sentence before that the polis will put up formidable obstacles. So let's actually explore why they say this. Quote, with our political and economic system so broken and unjust, how can a majority support for smaller total energy supply in lower material consumption be marshaled for action? A new industrial policy designed to ensure that everyone's needs are met, coupled with new distributive policies that guarantee equitable, adequate access for all, which in fact would improve access for many low-income households, could win over some voters, maybe even a sizable number, but probably not a majority. And even if it did, corporate America would not allow anything like this to go into effect, end quote. Just one direct criticism of that last line, corporate America wouldn't allow it to happen. Yes, they have a lot of sway. Yes, they have a lot of political power, but you make it sound like they 
will go to the politicians and say, no, you're not allowed to do this, rather than lobbying. If the people speak louder than the corporations, then the people would likely win. But also notice what they're doing here. One, they're saying that everybody has to lower their consumption and they have to limit their supply to that energy. But also it's saying that it will be distributed equitably and adequate access for all. First off, question, what is adequate? Who determines what adequate is? Is it the federal government? Is it the state governments? Are they deciding what everybody is allowed to have? And then also, this is definitely a system that is top-down control saying, okay, we will be the ones equitably distributing it. We will decide what everybody needs and we'll decide who gets it, where, when, how. So that scares me. That is definitely, a lot of people throw around socialism as in, oh, that's totally socialist. No, this is a socialist system. This is a planned economy. This is saying that this certain amount is going to be enough for you to live on and also is not too much to hurt the environment and you will accept it and we'll make sure that everybody gets the same access to that. Well, what about the people who have a Model X versus a Model S? What happens if you have a Ford Fusion ver- uh, that's an electric car or a Ford E Mustang versus a Tesla Model X? They use different charging methods. They may have different battery sizes. So does that Tesla person get to charge up their battery to 75% while the Mustang E person gets to charge their battery up to 100%? Because the equal access only provides 100 gigawatt hours, and maybe that's not enough to fully charge the Tesla. So are you going to handicap the person with the Tesla? These sort of practical questions really come up when you start breaking down this idealistic version of how the economy could, or this future economy, could work. And those are a lot of my main criticisms. I love the ethos. I do love the passion that this author has for ensuring that we survive as a species, that we limit our carbon emissions, that we lower our impact on the earth. There is a passion there that is admirable. And I think that we should all be conscious of our decisions and how they affect the world. But but just because you're conscious and aware of what your decisions, what the impact of your decisions will be, doesn't mean that you have to curb your behavior so drastically that you have to alter your life in order to save the planet. I think that is a dangerous mentality because then all you have to do is propose another big bad that government could step in and say, well, you are already used to giving up what you want in order to save the world. Well, now there's this other crisis that will save the world and we're going to curb your freedoms and your access to certain things just a little bit more so that we can save this other endangered species or something of this nature. I know I'm being a little out there. Because it is out there. It is kind of a conspiracy. Oh, well, if they control us now, they'll control us in the future. But I do genuinely believe that when you put the mechanisms in place and you allow yourself to really buy into this narrative that you're saving the world, then it could be exploited in the future if another quote-unquote crisis comes about. Now, that's enough you know, conspiracy rambling from me. You got the point. Metals are going to be a huge issue going forward, and some want to directly control how much of the resources and consumption that you can be a part of, and they're going to do it top-down. 
All right, let's move on to our second article, which is a little bit more of a positive view on this environment issue. This comes from the New York Times. An oil refiner leans on manure to provide a greener future. So, of course, we've heard a lot about biofuels over the last few years. There's been lots of contention. Lots of people are for it. There are other people who are against it because some farmers, they're just buying up old plants or they're just growing plants that they're not going to feed to any animal or send to any company to create food for humans, but they're just growing it and then converting it into biofuel because there's a market for it at this point. So there's been some contention there, but biofuel does seem like an interesting alternative and it could be a stopgap between we get to a purely green nuclear hydrogen-based economy or even a graphene-based economy way off in the future. So we'll see. Let's jump into what they're saying here. Quote, Every day, dozens of tanker trucks laden with pig manure and other kinds of agricultural waste rumble through the gateway of an unimposing steel and concrete plant in northeast Netherlands. This pungent cargo will be mixed into a slurry and pumped into massive tanks where hungry bacteria will begin within weeks to turn it into methane gas that will ultimately be sold to the energy grid to heat homes and generate electricity. The gas is a biofuel, similar to natural gas being pumped out of offshore wells in the northern sea, but because of its biological origins, considered carbon neutral. End quote. So, you know, you see these different companies that are really starting to jump into these different areas of the economy they're starting to realize okay okay so we know that there's this extra manure that these pigs don't necessarily aren't going to use so let's buy it up and let's turn it into biofuel or the farmers are saying well hey i already used all the manure i need to fertilize my field so i'm going to sell the extra stuff to this company that can actually use it and make sure that it has a purpose And that is one beautiful thing about the capitalist system that we live in. You know, normally there's waste products left over from certain processes. Well, if you have people who are constantly innovating, constantly pushing the boundaries, they look at that waste and they say, okay, that's inefficient. And I don't want that to just sit around. I want to, one, provide the farmer an opportunity to use his labor to make money off of that waste product, but also maybe I can make money off of it myself. And this is why I think there's a direct contrast to the last argument where capitalism is part of the problem, where consumption is part of the problem. That may be true. And of course, it's not just a capitalist system that inspires people to look at waste from different processes and use it more efficiently. That could be possible in the socialist system. Maybe you have the central planners come down and say, why do we have all this extra sheet metal? Oh, it's waste? Okay, well, we can melt it down and use it somewhere else. But when it's a capitalist system, the individual is really inspired to do this because they're like, okay, maybe I can make a little bit of profit here. Maybe I can also help out this other person and create a free trade that benefits him, that could benefit me and other people around me. So I think the capitalist system is providing a great example of how this process is actually good and how the capitalist system can actually help move us towards our environmental goals rather than detract from it. So what's this new future going to look like? And we're going to talk about this specific company here that's based out of Switzerland. 
Quote, for the plant's main owner, Varro Energy, a privately held oil refiner in Switzerland this, that sells diesel and gasoline at service stations across northwest Europe, biogas facilities like this one present the future, or at least a slice of it. The European Union and national governments like Switzerland are forcing suppliers of oil products to increase the proportion of the fuel that they sell that comes from renewable sources to mitigate climate change. Russia's effort to use natural gas as a political leverage in the war in Ukraine have added to the urgency and to end, to end dependence on fossil fuels. As a result, companies that refine and sell oil are making significant investments that would not have been considered before. Varro bought an 80% stake in this biofuel plant in the Dutch municipality of Cordreven. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that this year to gain a foothold in the business that is expected to grow rapidly. Shell, Europe's largest energy corporation, MVP, recently spent billions to acquire biogas companies, end quote. And you can see that there is a little bit of, not defiling, but a little bit of breaking from the capitalist system. It's not just these companies directly saying, hey, okay, we see the opportunity here. While they're willing to do it, there's also just regulations or at least a push from these governments saying, hey, you need to implement these policies. And then instead of saying how they have to implement these policies, they're saying you have to implement these policies, but you go out and find a free market solution. Maybe you buy up a competitor of a, bio produ a biofuel producing area. So you could see how this push is going to allow all sorts of different innovations. And I think it's going to be very interesting going into the future here because I do believe that this biofuel conversation is one that can get really depleted very quickly because there's going to be such a desire to have biofuel, to be able to mix with your gasoline or other diesel products. But the farmers are still going to need some of that manure and they're still going to need the area that they grow their crops on. But some of these companies might start saying, no, no, we're going to buy up this land. We're going to try to buy all your manure so you can't use it as fertilizer because we think that we can make more of a profit off of it. And we can offer you more money for that fertilizer. And we can offer you more money for the land so that we can just grow crops that we could put into our biofuel factory. And maybe there will be a conflict here that actually undermines the system that is currently allowing it to exist and be as efficient as it is. We'll see. That is a hotly debated topic for this part of the conversation. But I do think that biofuels are going to offer a very important stopgap, and I say stopgap, on the path towards a more green future. Because at the end of the day, these methane-producing factories, methane is one of the worst causers of the greenhouse effect on the planet Earth. So do we really want to be creating more of it? I think there's going to be a, a really huge pushback as people push into biofuels because it's cheaper than going fully electric, than putting up different infrastructure that requires a totally different type of power grid that requires you to buy thousands upon thousands of cells before you even start producing energy. So I think there will be a pushback as more companies go for biofuel trying to appear as super green and people start to realize how much methane contributes to the problem overall. Maybe I'm wrong, 
But that's why I think it's a stopgap, especially with a hydrogen economy coming. We've been hearing about these hydrogen cells and hydrogen-powered things for a long time now. And once that's here, besides nuclear, nothing else, nothing else is going to be comparable. And then once fission gets here, nothing will be comparable to that. So we just need to keep evolving, keep bringing up new processes, new strategies, new fuels until we can get to the ultimate form of energy collection, which will just be a giant sphere that circles around the sun and siphons off all of the heat and the light energy that it produces. But we are decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, away from being able to do that. But once we're a class, I believe it's a class three civilization, oh baby, we'll see what we can do. All right, so let's jump to our last article. It'll be a pretty quick one. I'll read one quote from this. It's from the Washington Examiner. Supreme Court packing just the latest Dem effort to control the court. So the conversation around court packing has been one that's been hot for a long time. Lincoln had an interesting take on it during the Civil War. FDR tried to pack the court and his Congress said, Oh, heck no, that is not happening. And then... As there was a 6-3 to majority that was put in place by Trump with Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, there's been a lot of conversation about, hey, maybe we should pack the court. Maybe we should put some more justices on there so it doesn't actually lean conservative. If anything, maybe we put on three extra justices so we have an even number. We have six Democrats, six Republicans. Some have suggested that they put on four Democrats so that it leans to the left a little bit. And of course, Democrat and Republican aren't necessarily terms that fully apply because in theory, the Supreme Court should be devoid of that bias. Maybe they are pro-constitutional or constitutional interpretation, whatever the different legal theories are. Maybe they have those behind them and they may lean conservative or liberal. But we shouldn't assign just, oh, they are conservative judges or they are liberal judges because those may be categories that don't truly define where they stand on some particular issues. So what is going on right now? Well, there's new legislation that's being proposed by two Democratic senators and there's this guy named Markey. He is a Republican who's really pushing back against this narrative. And there's one quote that I want to read that highlights what's going on, the rationale, but also the, the problem that Republicans are starting to have. Quote, Markey's explanation for the latest court packing bill was mandacious to the max. Quote, when a bully steals your lunch money in the backyard, you have to do something about it or else the bully will come back over and over again, he said. So we're in this fight, and we're going to reclaim these seats. You're not going to allow the bully to win. Markey is alleging that conservatives or Republicans have been the collective bully in the court fights for years. The facts show that that's the opposite. For four decades, the left has abused the process, with Republicans being the victims, end quote. And I'm sorry that I started wrong here. Markey's actually one of the senators who is proposing that they court pack. And this author says, oh, the Republicans have been the victims of the Democrats' bullying. Maybe they've been on the opposite side of policies that they don't like. 
maybe they have been pushed to do something or another is but first off it is not bullying it is the political process so stop making yourself out to be the victim you're falling into the victim politics that we love to play that the left has really loved to play over the last few years and i'm not standing for it victim politics gets you nowhere when you say that you are oppressed when you are a victim without just reasoning just trying to manipulate people to get them to feel sympathy for you rather than having an actual argument or evidence to back up the fact that you actually are a victim, that something heinous and malicious has happened to you, that your rights have been outright violated in a terrible manner. If you don't have that sort of evidence and you're just using the word to make it seem like, oh, we've been victimized, it does not get you anywhere. And I say this, in real world, if there's a victim of a terrible crime, it is different. I am not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to victim shame. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm saying in the purely political sense, when you make your whole party out to be a victim, it completely disenfranchises you. It says, we had no power to change anything. We couldn't have done anything. That's not true. You could have stepped up in multiple different ways. You could have done what Democrats did for a long time in order to push back. And you had principles and you didn't do what they did. So then don't say that you're a victim. If you weren't willing to stand up and do everything in your power to stop it because you have principles, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, I'm just saying you have to acknowledge where you failed and you can't call yourself a victim. This is the mentality that the Republicans have gotten into, just like the Democrats had gotten into since 2012. And it is not going to get us anywhere. It's going to make the people frustrated with the political system and make them not believe in it. Because rather than actually getting up and doing something, they're using this victim language that makes it seem as though, oh, well, we can't change anything anyway. Political freezing, the inability to do anything, is not appealing to anybody who wants actual action done in the political process. All right, that's all I wanted to read from that one. It's a really quick one. If you want to read the entire article, there is the link in the description like I talked about for the first one. So let's talk about our daily delight. This one comes from Upworthy. So I thought it was really interesting. This one comes out of the UK. Man spends $400 at the vet to treat his limping dog, only to realize that he was simply copying him. You know, so sometimes our animals, they do the smallest things, the cutest things to show us that they care. Quote, Billy, an adorable dog from London, proves this point. Russell Jones, Billy's owner, had a plaster cast on after an injury. He shared that he observed his dog limping and thought something was wrong, end quote. Turns out Billy was completely fine, but of course it still cost him a little bit of money. Quote, the lurcher is observing lim- imitating his owner's limp by walking with one paw elevated above the ground. Quote, cost me 300 pounds in vet fees and x-rays. Nothing wrong, just sympathy. Love him, Russell shared on the post caption, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys going around, or like I mentioned before, you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a link directly to the YouTube videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
And also, the catalog is slowly getting uploaded to Rumble. It seems to have an issue with the previous episodes, but anything that's new is tending to show up there. So if you want to watch on Rumble instead of on YouTube and give your money to them rather than the YouTube advertisers, go right ahead. That is an option for you. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.